Standard Free Range American Podcast, presented by BlackRifleCoffee.com. Hello, welcome to another Free Range American Podcast episode. Today is a special treat. One of my new friends, one of someone that's, uh, you know, nonchalantly run into in the past before. We have we have some uh, mutual friends and we'll get into those, but I have Tim Parlatore with us today, attorney, but also Navy veteran. Tell us, yeah. tell us, tell us about that service first, Tim. Oh, the Navy. That's, you know, I love the Navy. You know, I've loved the Navy ever since I joined them at 18, but let's just say that they've made some Pretty stupid mistakes over the past couple of years that I've, <laughs> that I've been involved in exposing. <laughs> so yeah, when did you when did you attend? You were in Annapolis. You went to the Naval Academy. When did you attend uh, out there? So I graduated in class of two thousand two. Uh, okay. So it was yeah, you know, certainly a unique time period. We were you know the first class to graduate post nine eleven. So I spent the first three years in post Cold War peacetime Navy, and all of a sudden graduate and head straight overseas. So that was unique time. And you were a surface warfare officer? I was. I was surface warfare. I was uh, on a guided missile cruiser, you know, deployed three weeks after graduation. Uh, and then later in the reserves did uh, some time with Naval Security Force. So you guys were you guys were armed with tomahawks probably? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, use some of those tomahawks? We didn't. Uh actually oh. by the time we got there you know, Iraq hadn't started up yet. We were getting, we were preparing to shoot Tomahawks into Iraq, but then that got delayed until after we left. Oh. A lot of what we were doing was uh, was doing the boardings of all of the uh, Al Qaeda personnel running away. You know, going from Afghanistan through Pakistan, jumping on boats, and then mm-hmm. we'd we catch them out at sea. Oh wow! Uh, that, that and also air defense for the uh, George Washington Carrier Battle Group. So did you did you guys have a, a lot of Coast Guard with you, or is it your own Navy boarding team? Is it Master at Arms that does that? No, it was a total Navy boarding team, mostly gunner's mates. Okay. Or as we call them, both mates with hunting licenses. <laughs> so how long, how long did you do in the Navy? I did three years active duty. Uh, I got off active duty a couple of years early because they were downsizing the community, and um, I wanted to go to law school. Uh, at the time, I was applying to try and get over into the Navy JAG Corps, but uh, believe it or not, they said that I didn't meet their standard. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what standard is that? Uh, Zing! <laughs> I, I think it was an ethical standard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. We're, we're going to get into that. Um, minimum uh, and a maximum, and I was off. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so then, yeah, you went into the reserves, and then where'd you go to law school at? I was at Brooklyn Law. Uh, so, yeah, in New York City. Um, you know, law school is one of those things where it's very regional you, know, you try and go to school where you're actually going to practice because it's a lot of state law. And, you know, my, my goal at that time, if, if the JAG Corps wasn't going to take me was to do uh, criminal defense work in New York city. So, and that's where you started, right? Because you, yeah. you kind of cut your teeth with uh, a lot of organized crime stuff. I did. I did, which was an interesting experience. It was it's kind of the end of the era of that uh, type of work. But yeah, what a what a realm to start a, <laughs> a law career in. Well, you know, and being in the Navy, 
gave me a lot of you know maturity and experience uh, and confidence to go into things that would ordinarily be terrifying. You know, when I was a second year law student, um, I was interning for an, for an attorney working on this big high profile, you know, organized crime case. And so one day they had a meeting of all the co-defendants at the jail. We all go, you know, all the attorneys and, and me, the law student. I get held up because, of course, my ID didn't match with the, the attorney IDs that they want. So when they finally let me in, I walk into this room that has the entire leadership structure of one of these, you know, five crime families. And the only seat available in the room is the one right next to the boss. And uh, yeah, having grown up watching, you know, The Godfather and, you know, of course, The Sopranos and everything, I walk in, the boss looks at me and says, oh, who the F is this? And my client jumps up, oh, you know, this is my lawyer. It's Tim. Well, he's not a lawyer, a lawyer. He's a law student. And the boss says, oh, yeah? Come here. You sit down right here. So I, I sit down next to him. He turns to me and he starts interrogating me on all these legal concepts. And I'm noticing out of the corner of my eye, all the other lawyers are getting absolutely terrified of what's going on. But I'm just answering the guy's questions. He finally sits back and says, all right, I like this kid. (laughs) What are some of these questions? Like, do you remember like specifically? He was, it was intricate questions about, you know, severances and and suppression and, um, you know, this one counted. It's a murder, but they got no body. So how do they even prove the guy is dead? I mean, What's to say the guy didn't just run off to Mexico with his girlfriend? His wife is a bitch. And I'm sitting there like, yep, we could do that. We could do the Mexico defense. What I didn't realize at the time was that the guy had spent close to 20 years in jail on, you know, these smaller stints, life in prison on the installment plan. Most of it in solitary confinement where he did nothing but read books about the law. And so all the lawyers were terrified to answer his questions because he had spent hundreds of times more times studying the law than just any of us. memorizing and studying yeah case law yeah so so that was kind of my baptism by fire into that <laughs> that's great and then but still like what was it like that being your first criminal experience was you're on a giant defense team how many lawyers was it there were 40 defendants so there were you know, at least 40 lawyers, several of them had, you know, multiple lawyers. The, the case went on for years and they, you know, when the first guy pleads guilty, they then brought in a bunch of new people. Throughout the, the lifetime of that case, they had three different people that they at various times claimed, okay, well, now this is the lead defendant because we think he's the boss of the Genovese crime family. Okay, he pleaded guilty. Now we think this guy's the boss of the Genovese crime family. It was insane. It was It was a wild long case. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's just crazy. <laughs> so when you but, finished, but when, I finished it, it, yeah, when yeah. I finished it, my boss looked at me and says, okay, Tim, you can do anything you want now because after handling a case like that, everything else in the law is simple. <laughs> <laughs> so you said it was three years. Yeah, the whole case went on about three years. So did you did you end up finishing law school before it was over? I so when I came into it, it had already been gone for about a year. Okay. And they yeah, it ended up, you know, everybody getting sentenced uh, right before I graduated. Wow. And were you were you in the trials, some of those trials? 
So actually, that was one of those ones that it ended up with everybody pleading guilty. Nobody yeah. pleading guilty to what they were originally charged with. Yeah, so it was but, all just um, breaking yeah, everything down out. and serving yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when you graduated then, did you stick around in New York and continue uh, kind of down that path? Because I imagine you had your name on this, so yeah, there's probably something else that came up that someone oh, gave yeah. you a call for. Yeah, and no, it, it it just progressed from that, and you know, I worked for a for another firm for a couple of years, and then went out on my own. And um, yeah, it, it's one of those things where lawyers they don't often advertise, um, at least in in those types of communities. And so, you know, all of my advertising was on the pages of the New York Post about cases that I'd done. And so, you know, you you take a case and do a good job with it, and then all of a sudden you start getting calls from other people saying. Hey, I saw what you did on this thing. So, you know, I want, here's my problem. Yeah. So, you know, that, that kind of is where I, I built up my career and got a couple of nice big ones. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things though, where you never, it's, it's people can go their whole lives not knowing anything about this side of society, but unless you need it, then when you need it, you realize you don't know anything about it. You don't know how to choose. I mean, I've been in this situation quite a few times where, you know, even if it's as little as, you know, I got a ticket in New Mexico or, or four stocked in Texas. And it was like, how do I, I'm just trying to, to get this resolved. How do I choose the right attorney? Like, Outside of yellow pages or weird ads or things like that, especially if you're going if you're going into something very specific like patent law or copyright infringement <laughs> or you know <laughs> business certain different business dealings and things like that, it's like you, unless you have someone who's experienced that before that can recommend or something like that, like yeah, right. how do you choose? Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, and I've sat on the other side of that table, obviously, um, you know, for many years where clients come in and they they try and you know give me their problem, I listen to them, I explain things to them, I tell them, you know, what their options are, and and it's shocking to me how many of them look at me and say, you know, Tim, we've interviewed 10 different lawyers before and you're the first person that's ever actually explained what's going on here. So no. people are more more inclined to just get hired rather than it like like have you have you ever turned any down? Like oh, where, a you, lot. where you they they feed you the story, you're like, you know, I think I'm good on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. The first time I sat across from a guy in a jail cell accused of murdering and dismembering a body, and he so you want to hear how I did it? No, but Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're done here. <laughs> and it was nice meeting you and I wish you the best of luck. Um, now I, I often turn down cases. Um, I, I look at it as, you know, I, obviously I'm in this business to make money, but at the same time, I want to be able to help somebody. Uh, I want it to be somebody who needs help. Um, and some people, some people really don't need my help. Uh, and some people I look at and say, you know what, you're in this situation, you can probably qualify for a public defender um, you know, if your mom is not willing to pay for it. And you're better off there because you can give me a whole bunch of money and you're still going to go to jail for the rest of your life. So I'm, I'm not really, you know, I, I don't yeah. need 
that, you know, I, big yeah, how does, how does somebody in that case hunt, track you down? That's already in, in prison and stuff. Like, where do you get those family calls members. from? Family members? Family members, friends. Um, you know, sometimes I get calls from prison. That's why if, if you call me from a block number, I'm always going to answer because I never know if it's a jail call that I can't return. Yeah. So, um, but usually family members. Okay. Well, so yeah, you, you talked about how, you know, you like helping people and that's kind of where our paths originally crossed. You, uh, are the lead attorney for Mr. Eddie Gallagher. Yes. A friend of ours. Um, which you've uncovered quite the stones uh, when you flip those when you flip those rocks over, um, yeah. Like like you like you were saying when we first started the show. <laughs> I love the Navy, except they've been fucking up lately. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. You know that was it was a case that came to me. Um, yeah, his family reached out to me actually through the former uh, NYPD commissioner Bernie Carrick mm-hmm. and. Um, it was a case that I read about in the newspapers and it always kind of didn't sit right with me. It always seemed like there was something wrong with this case. And then, you know, once they gave me the opportunity to, you know, to dive past the headlines and see what was really into it, it, it was a mess, total mess. And so, yeah, that was a really important, um, important case for me. You know, it was, it was definitely a, an injustice that needed to be righted. An well, yeah, institution you and, that needs to be better. Yeah, you and I had talked uh, a few weeks ago, kind of jokingly about how, like, you know, Eddie was lucky that that he kind of got the people involved when he did. He's like, because so many, so many wrong things were happening that it quickly could have just been buried, and he could have sat in jail forever, and <laughs> oh, yeah. no one would have known, or you know, he could have just been screwed over, and 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 rights completely ripped away from him. And processes and stuff completely ignored. Yep. And no one would have known had, you know, the right people not got involved when they did. And I, I you know, I, I, I give a lot of credit to Andrea for that because she was, yeah. you know, she came from a, a politics background for campaigning. And right. when this started going down, she essentially just took everything that she knew when it came to campaigning to get people on board with something like, mm-hmm. and, and transferred that to, to Eddie's case. And I think I, I strongly believe that's why he is in the position that he's in now is because, because if he had had any other situation where a wife or somebody that just said, well, oh, you're going to jail. All right. I'll see you later. We're divorced. And, and that's the thing. There were, there's a lot of guys that have been in the same situation as Eddie. And I would say the two things that really distinguished him were, you know, one that he was a Navy SEAL and that kind of brought a whole different uh, level of attention to it and also support uh, from the community. And the other thing that distinguishes him is none of those guys, Rodding and Leavenworth, were married to Andrea Gallagher. And that, <laughs> that really, those two things really kind of came together to... You know, I, the third two on. that he had a very good record, you know, that because that's, that's another thing. Yes. You... When you, I, you know, we've been approached plenty of times in the last eight years because of our our reach and status and everything of, hey, can you help this thing out? And when I start, the first thing when I start digging into something like this and you yeah. see a pattern of behavior yeah. where it's like, oh, man, I'm sorry, I can't, 
I can't stick my neck out for you because you've got this, 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 and this on your, on your record behind you that leads up to this. Like, so I don't know if I can even believe what you're saying at this point. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that was something for Eddie because a lot, you know, he had such a great record and people were, you know, willing to put their neck out for him. And one of the things that happened there is a lot of people, you know, from the Pentagon started going around to, to, to those people sticking their necks out and saying, Hey, Walk away from this thing. You're going to get egg on your face. There's a video of the murder itself. And when that thing comes out, you're going to be really embarrassed. And it was a total lie. It was something. Yeah. I I did not know that piece. Oh, yeah. It was a total lie. I I got a call one night from a from a congressman. And he says, you know, Tim, I just just walked out of the White House. And, you know, I was there with the White House chief of staff and some two-star admiral came over to us and said, hey, you guys better stop talking about Eddie Gallagher because there's a videotape of him stabbing this terrorist. And he walks right out of the White House and calls me and I said, hey, that's not true. Doesn't exist. I have all the videos. I want to show you the videos, but the judge won't let me. And I actually went to the judge and, and told him this story to say, hey, can I get an exception to the protective order? So I can go down to D.C. and show these videos to the members of Congress. Uh, and over the prosecution's vehement objection, he allowed me to do it. And that that kind of stemmed a lot of the um, efforts that they were making to keep people away from this case. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a key decision that you made that say that that probably saved a lot of face, too. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you even you even said that the Air Force and the Army has had you out to speak yeah. to Jag. Uh, yeah, tell me about that. It, so, yeah, that's, you know, this case exposed so many problems in in NCIS, in the Navy JAG Corps, in Naval Special Warfare Command. And a lot of that, they try and, you know, cover up and they, they put the blinders on and try and think of anything other than we screwed up and somebody actually exposed us. And yet, I've gotten calls from the Army, from the Air Force, even from the Marine Corps, uh, to come out and do training on you know what went wrong, and and so I've I've been regularly going out and giving training to the other services um, to show them hey here's what the Navy did, here's how to avoid <laughs> getting into a similar situation, and um, I'm still waiting. I've made the offer. I'm still waiting for the Navy to uh, invite me. Now, in your opinion. What do you think the motive was on their side? Like, was this NCIS agents that were just, they wanted to get back at a seal? They wanted, they wanted a, a, a win in a case? Like, what was the whole purpose of, of the landslide of collusion that went on? Because, and, and, I'll, and I'll preface this with, I've been involved uh, in, a, in a military criminal case before, not against me. I was part of the the court staff. So I was the, I was a bailiff, but the entire trial was against a really good service member that had a impeccable record. And it was just a, a, a minor incident or infraction or whatever, what you will, but it just, when you saw the prosecution that were military officers that were air force officers that are doing this, like, they are stretching everything so far to try and ruin this person's career and life. 
when despite the fact that the evidence in the story is coming true coming coming out in the trial that everybody's kind of going wait why are we all here like this right. this needs to be a commander ha- handled like like issue and we could be on our way but instead you're overreaching and overstepping like as far as you possibly could stretch this stupid thing to get this win is that what happened there what do you think that that prosecute the prosecutors? They were commission officers, right? Yes. What what ranks were they? Uh, they were both uh, first lieutenants. Okay. When they go up for major, what distinguishes them from their peers? Wins. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly it. But you know, why? It's, it's I mean, a civilian. Yeah. You know, if you're at the U.S. Attorney's Office, obviously having a good conviction rate helps you, but. You can be a line prosecutor for your entire uh, career. In the military, we have this rank structure that doesn't exist uh, outside where every every one of those prosecutors is competing against all the other prosecutors to have the highest conviction rate so that they can break out from their peers and get the top ranking. And the problem is you have, you know, the military legal community is small. It's closed. You know, because it's only the people that started at the bottom and move up within that pyramid. And so unlike the U.S. Attorney's Office or other offices where somebody can be brought in uh, at mid, mid or high level to, you know, to teach, to train, to lead, what you have is the people that pulled the dirty tricks to get ahead on the rankings are the ones that then become the supervisors. And it's just this cycle. Uh, and yeah, that was something that was really obvious when I got into the Gallagher case is that you see that all of these military attorneys, they're all following the same playbook and, and they've all got this same, um, you know, command culture, uh, that doesn't necessarily prioritize ethics. And so when I came in doing something that was so far outside of the book that they were used to following, it put them into, you know, a completely uncomfortable situation where they didn't know what I was going to do next. From the NCIS side of things, you have an agency that is by and large uh, staffed by incompetence. You know, there are some good NCIS agents out there, but it's not what you see on TV. I mean, I'll agree with you 100% because all my dealings with OSI, I know a few guys that I love that work over in that office, but uh, the things that I've that I've been through with them, it makes me go, "What the hell is this organization about?" Because the first thing that I'll say about them, they are supposed to be investigators. That's what they are. They they're not there to pass judgment. They're there to get the get the story, get the facts. But that's that's the attitude that I've been faced with any run in I've had with them. They already passed their judgment, and now they're they think we're in Law and Order, a cop show or something, and now we're we're playing the cop game and the interrogation thing. And it's it's like, meanwhile, it's like, dude, you're uh, you're wearing the same uniform. You're here as an outside as a as a as an agency to investigate when things are when fuckery is afoot, right? Here's the thing you got to remember. What's the what's the primary qualification to become an NCIS agent? Probably uh, law enforcement background. Uh, here's what it is. If you want to be a federal agent, you go on usajobs.com and you upload your resume and you click all the different agencies you want to apply to. 
And in order to get you know a job at NCIS, generally you've also checked the boxes for FBI, DEA, ATF, all of those other agencies, and they've all rejected you. And this is the one down at the bottom that's actually giving you the job offer that you've accepted. So, <laughs> you know, it's you look at the lead agent on Eddie's case. He started out his career as a border patrol officer. He was in the Department of Homeland Security, so he could have skipped that whole hiring process if he was competent and gotten hired within the agency to an investigator position at ICE or HSI. He didn't. Instead, he somehow goes down NCIS and very quickly demonstrated to us just total incompetence. But you have the incompetence that's then combined with a dangerous sense of ambition and confidence because, hey, we're NCIS, we're on the TV show. You know, they, they feel like they've got this whole aura about them. That's all. But fame. then they're comfortable with it completely acting illegally. It's for the win. <laughs> it's all for the win. Look, like, when, when they get what? Yeah, when they get a case, again, you don't get promoted because you investigated a murder and then turned into a report saying, hey, no murder was committed. You get promoted because this, you get assigned a murder case and you come back and say, hey, here's the guy. I put cuffs on him. This doesn't make sense to me. Like why, like even, even back to the, to the JAG officers thing, like how is promotion based on wins? Why isn't it just doing your job well and doing your job within the law? Like, Hey, you know, there's going to be times where you prosecute yeah. somebody that you shouldn't be prosecuting. Doesn't mean you have to lie, cheat and steal to make sure you still win. And a person that doesn't deserve to be punished goes to jail. Like, how is that not a balanced system? It's a cultural problem. It's a cultural and an institutional problem that somebody needs to really examine and shake up the whole system. And has really this caused change. investigations into the culture of the of, of specifically Navy JAG? They did a comprehensive review of the Navy JAG Corps culture. Um, nobody nobody interviewed me. Um, <laughs> You know, so, you know, how, how, how much change went about? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you. I Not if somebody just shows up and says, hey, anything, uh, anything yeah. out of place here? Nope, uh, nope, they, everything's fine. Everything's yeah. fine. They investigated themselves. They cleared themselves of wrongdoing. And then they're continuing to do the same thing all over again. I mean, as you can probably guess, when anything goes wrong in Coronado and a, and a Navy SEAL gets accused of something, who do you think they call? And <laughs> you know, whether I'm able to take on the case or not, I have a very you know, tight um, finger on the pulse of what's going on out there. And the games are continuing. You know, it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why Eddie and I you know, decided to go into federal court um, against the Navy and NCIS is because there has been no accountability whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, you know, think about it in, in any other circumstance, you know, if you, if your unit fails so miserably like this, the commander gets fired. Mm -hmm. The triad probably gets fired and you come in and somebody, you know, a strong leader is re is assigned there with orders to take control of this unit and change the command culture. None of that happened. No, I mean, did anybody face any shred of punishment in this entire chain? Well, they gave Navy Achievement Medals to the prosecutors. And then 
the president ordered those medals rescinded. But beyond that, and I've asked the question, but I've been, you know, totally despite that. And correct me if I'm wrong. There was straight law breaking that happened yes. both in NCIS and the JAG Corps. So yeah. you're allowed to break the law as a federal investigator and as a Navy officer that is a prosecuting attorney. Yeah. And we're not going to even so much as reprimand any of these people. I've been told that they're now finally starting an investigation into the lead prosecutor's misconduct. Um, at the time that this all occurred, he had 19 years in, so they waited a year until he had 20. They allowed him to go out and retire, and then a month after his retirement ceremony, now we're finally going to look. How convenient. Yeah. yeah. So, meanwhile, you take a guy like Eddie Gallagher, who didn't do anything wrong, and you try and put him in jail for the rest of his life. And then when he... Then when the... Um... When the jurors say that he's not guilty, then you try and take his rank and yep. his retirement yep. from him. How does that work? <laughs> like, how do you get acquitted and then they still come back and say, oh, well, we're, we're reducing oh, you. And he, he, was, he was convicted of one count. He, yeah. he was convicted of one count of being in a photograph with a dead terrorist. Um, Have you ever been to any World War II museum? Or Vietnam Museum, yeah, or Korean War Museum. You have no idea. <laughs> because because if we're canceling one, we're canceling them all. Are we not? Like so, some so of the most it. famous photos yeah. of World War II Marines posing with dead bodies of Pacific yeah. <laughs> of Japanese fighters. And and what's interesting is I started putting together my um you know my my presentation on why that should be um, you know, removed and how, yes, maybe it's a technically a violation of the rules, and yet at the same time, you have to have consistency. And I put it out on social media to say, hey, has anybody ever been held uh, accountable for this? Has anybody ever been charged with being in a photo? Because um, I want to, you know, nobody keeps any statistics on this, so I want to put it together myself. And of course, I got tons of people who said, you know, ah, this happened, I got counseled on it, I got told, hey, don't do it again. Um, I got an unbelievable number of emails and calls from Vietnam veterans who misunderstood my request and were offering to send me their photos of <laughs> the <FAC>. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's priceless. Me. All these, these vets, they thought, you know, they were so excited because they thought, Hey, if I go into my attic and I dust off the old photos of dead enemy, maybe this can help Eddie Gallagher. And yeah. so they were you know, I didn't want to tell them no because you know they felt like. Yeah, but it's true. I mean, you can yeah. go into any 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 museum, and these photos are blown up. You know, this Damn. big, hanging right there with a smiling U.S. soldier next to a pile of bodies, and that's okay. But the, well, well, here's here's my second question to that. Then, did everybody that was in that photo get charged with the same thing? No, nobody and, else. And got why and how? They were all they were all given a pass, including um, the officer who was in the photo. Eddie was not the senior person in the photo. Wow! Yeah. How how does now, this even fu funny <laughs> funny parenthetical story? As I'm sitting there preparing this, totally separate from that, I read a new book that had just come out. Um, 
oh, thank you for my service. Um, and in it, I'm reading about this guy, Matt Best, who's talking about all the photos that he took with dead bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Mandated by the Army, that the Army told him he had to take all these crazy photos. <laughs> so, which, that may have made it into my submission. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, one, so the one conviction he had was being in a photo... Yeah. No one else. No one else was in trouble for this, but that's what they used to try and take his rank and his retirement away from, Correct. while letting everybody else walk away scot free with nothing on their record. Correct. Not only that, taking the holding them up as being heroes in the community because these were the ones who stood up against their chief, the lieutenant who was in the photo, uh, Tom McNeil, who I brought in other photos of him. You know, in, in Iraq, drunk on a rooftop with all the junior enlisted. Um, he not only got held up as a hero, not charged with anything, he got sent to another team and, you know, put in front of a new bunch of enlisted SEALs and told, this is your officer. Follow him. Trust him. He's great. <laughs> this whole thing was a mess. I just can't. I, it disappoints me that no... No one else was held accountable. Nobody else was in trouble. Like, I can't believe there's not a massive IG like case over this, inspecting the entire command down. And, and part of the problem here is that the people that got so invested into the theory in the beginning that Eddie was was guilty went all the way up the chain of command, and so you have to essentially convince two-star-plus admirals uh, to take the position of, hey, I got totally fooled and I was wrong, so now hold the people accountable? No, they're, instead they were like, we went both feet in and there's no turning back. I have to continue, I have to continue dying on this sword. Otherwise, yeah. I look like an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also an element of because the president uh, did get involved, um, there's an element of pushback uh, for that, yeah, I've always said that you know it was, you know, his involvement was very helpful in certain regards, and in other respects, you know, the moment that the president got involved, um, as far as the media and certain members in the Pentagon were concerned, uh, the truth kind of became the first casualty because okay, now we need to you know pursue this as an anti-Trump thing and. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did that Iraq affect your guys's case at all uh, when he when he said that first tweet? It uh, did. Like, it, like in in a bad way. Like, because I no. I know a lot of people were uh, there were there was kind of both sides. It was either I saw like, ooh, this was a strategic move on his part because now it it, it involves command influence and it forces them to drop it. So the first tweet that he made was uh, was releasing Eddie from pretrial confinement. And and that was the only thing he did before the verdict. Um, all of the other involvement was post-acquittal. Um, but when he released him from pretrial confinement, that was major uh, for us. And you know, pretrial confinement is something that is frequently misused as a way to coerce people into pleas. You know, you put somebody in a, in a yeah. cell... Make and it becomes much more difficult for me to meet with them and to prepare a defense. So getting him out was huge for helping me to, to prepare. But it also took the media feeding frenzy and you know brought it up to a much higher level. And you know, of course, brought in 
you know, CNN and New York Times and all these other people to, you know, to come in and report, you know, on what they wanted to report as opposed to what really happened. Um, but ultimately, as far as the jury is concerned, I don't think that it had any effect, uh, but for significantly increasing the quality of my presentation because I could actually prepare with them. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's good. It's, yeah, it's been, I'm, I'm looking forward to the book. Uh, I hope the DOD, I mean, I expect the DOD to hold it up as long as they possibly can in their review. You know. Hopefully not. I mean, the thing, you know, Eddie Gallagher is one of those guys, he never would have written a book. You know, he yeah. was one of those, you know, quiet warriors that just, you know, wanted to do yeah. the job. He's very and, quiet, very calm, yeah. very just, he, man, he, he was, likes, likes to go out on the boat, hang on the beach. Yeah, he, he was not, he was not the standard seal, you know, which a lot of the guys in his platoon were, you know, the types that their career ambition was to, you know, have a big career as a former Navy seal. Um he was not that type. And so when, when this happened and he was kind of put into a position where he had to write a book, um, I mean, it's very good. I've, I've read it. Uh, I, I assisted in parts of it. And I don't think the DOD is going to be able to do that much to it uh, because the majority of what it talks about are what happened in the trial and what happened in, you know, in his home life and stuff. Yeah. So they can't, they can't be nuking things for tactics and and procedure and classified material because all this was, it's all trial stuff. Exactly. It was yeah. every, if you, if you want to put it in on in a courtroom with the New York times sitting in the back row watching, then you can't redact it out of his book. Yeah, that is true. So aside from, aside from Mr. Gallagher in this case, you know, it's, fr- I, I, I definitely, you and I have had many conversations about the frustrations with that, but uh, what are some other big ones that, that, that you really enjoyed or maybe, some of the ones that you thought was like this, no one would take this, but you were like, I have an idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, I had an interesting case a few years back. Um, it was an art theft case. Art and, theft. Yeah. An art theft case. And yeah, I, I <laughs> this got is something you hear every day. <laughs> so the wife came, came to me and said, yeah, Hey, you know, my husband's been charged with art theft and, you know, we worked out a deal. And so I, I went down to the courthouse and, and everything I met him and he told me the most ridiculous, outrageous story that couldn't possibly be true. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, maybe we have a good insanity defense here. Um, you know, his story was that the owner um, actually paid him to steal the art. And where you know, was this art stolen from? The house of gallery? The house. So, so just Long Island. oil paintings on the wall. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. We got it. All right. Finish, finish, finish our scenario. And, and so then the night before we go in to see the judge, all of a sudden I'm sitting there in my apartment and I see on TV, a, you know, preview of coming attractions for a new, I think it was ABC um, reality TV show, Brooklyn DA, where they had camera crews embedded with the, <laughs> with the investigative team. And there's my client on national TV, a videotape of him taking a Picasso out of a box, putting it in a bag and then going out to his car. (laughs) (laughs) So I go into the judge and like, you know, this would have been helpful to know that they were going to put this thing on national TV. (laughs) And 
But it turned out, even though they thought they had a rock solid case, you know, they had videotape of him coming to the house, of him going through the paintings, of him picking out these specific paintings, taking him, you know, out of the house. They catch him, you know, on the street outside. You know, all the vehicles come in and do an interdiction, and they. they That's what goes on in Long Island for art art theft is SWAT rolls out. Oh my God, we got a guy stealing paintings. And and so they had this whole big thing on their uh, on their TV show about it, and yet the more I went into it, that crazy story he told me about how the owner did this, evidence kept coming up that it was true. <laughs> the it was there was insurance claims. There was you know right before he did this, he went and overinsured them for you know, ten times the actual value. Wow, and, that's not that's not a dead giveaway. Yeah, it was insane. And so all of a sudden, I got all this evidence. I go into, um, we we went into trial, and I'm I'm all raring to go. My guy's been kept in pretrial confinement the whole time. Uh, but I'm ready to go. We're five minutes away from picking a jury. All of a sudden, the judge looks at me and says, so the prosecutor and I go up to the bench. He looks around and he says, guys, I don't want to try this case. Okay. If your guy pleads guilty, I'll let him go home today. Will, will, will he take time served? I'm sure he'll take time served, but the problem is, you know, he's got to admit that he did something wrong. And, you know, what do you want him to say on this stuff? Because I know the prosecutors want him to admit to certain things that aren't true. Just like, yeah, yeah, I don't care about that. Just, just admit to the statute and I'll let him go home today. Okay. Lynn's <laughs> 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 oh my guy. And, and he's like, so all I have to do is admit that I actually took the paintings out of the house, which I did. Yeah, he did. And I don't have to address the fact of whether I was, whether the owner asked me to do it or not. Then I get to go home. Yeah. Okay. So he went home that day. <laughs> <laughs> and they, was it just who was involved that possibly sparked that or? I mean, it was, there was a lot of pretrial litigation and stuff. And I, I had subpoenaed all the outtakes from the, uh, from the documentary thing. And, you know, there was a big issue of is reality TV, you know, really, um, does that have the same protections as the media, the press and everything? And, um, it was such a messy case that it would have been, you know, a total circus for a trial and the judge, the judge, I think, made the right decision that, you know, we don't need this circus. Let's just, you know, Tim, you've made your point. Take your toys yeah, and go home. I got it. <laughs> just get, just get out of here. Get out of here. What's, uh, what's one that you were just super happy to win? Like, because, you know, someone was getting shafted and you jumped in and found everything you needed to find and, you so, know, right, right it a wrong. That's what I like to hear. That's the, those are the ones I like to hear. Uh, so, I mean, there have been several of those. Um, obviously, Eddie. Uh, a few years <laughs> well, ago. Well, you're still trying to right that wrong. It's a very yeah, open still, wrong wound. <laughs> so, do you remember a few years back, there were three guys um, who parachuted off the top of the new number one World Trade Center? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I so, think I've, I, I'm sure I heard of it. Yeah, they were base jumpers, okay. and and they they snuck into One World Trade, um, you know, the New Freedom Tower, and they parachuted off the top. They had uh, GoPros on their helmets, which was the most unbelievable footage. Um, and 
and they got, they didn't get caught that night, but they did this whole big investigation. Uh, and, you know, they hired me and I called up the prosecutor to try and handle the thing quietly. Um, but because the DA was looking at this as a political issue for his reelection campaign, he wanted to make a big thing of it. Uh, I, don't, and- I don't see how that, like, just in the logic of me being the public, a DA going after three base jumpers that did not affect my life at all doesn't make me want to vote for him anymore. It makes me think he's wasting my time and my money. Right. Well, he wanted to put him in jail for seven years. What? Yeah. Yeah. And I told him from the beginning, I said, look, this is a misdemeanor. It's trespassing. We'll do, we'll do community service. And I said to them, you know, before anybody knew what happened, I said to him, let's do this quickly. Let's do this quietly. We'll come in on a Tuesday night. You know, we'll just come in. We'll do a very, you know, simple, simple plea, get out the back door, do community service, and that's it. We don't need to publicize this. Nobody needs to know that there's no security at the number one terrorist target in the world. Yeah. Uh, but they just got stupid with it and they decided, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna make a big media circus. And they did. And you know, they charged them with uh with burglary under the theory that in New York state law, unlawfully or remain entering or remaining in a structure with intent to commit a crime therein is burglary. Yeah, it doesn't have to be stealing. Uh, and the crime that they committed was base jumping. It's a New York City administrative code violation that thou shalt not jump off of a building from a height of more than 25 feet. So um, so that's what we had a two and a half week jury trial over. And God, it my was defense, a two and a half week trial. My defense was is the most, and I recognize this is going to sound real geeky lawyery on you, but intend to commit a crime therein. Therein, that means inside the building. Base jumping by its very nature is they're out. They were on the roof. <laughs> they jumped off the building. <laughs> and you won with that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they're and in, they're out. <laughs> the first time, so I raised this thing, and I'm talking with the district attorney, trying to get him to be reasonable. And and I realized how unreasonable he was going to be when he looks at me and says, let me tell you why you're wrong. Oh, boy, here we go. Oh, let's go with this one. So under your theory, if somebody breaks into a building with a rifle and goes out onto a balcony and shoots somebody and kills them, they get away with it because it happened outside. I'm like, actually, no, dude, you can still charge him with murder. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> called just, murder. It's just not a burglary. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it was such a silly case. Um, but, you know, serious for these guys. And yeah. I, I got the judge to order them to allow me to go to the top of the World Trade Center myself. And, you know, to where they actually jumped from, which is much higher than the observation deck. And so... You know, we go up there. The prosecutor demanded to go with. Um, the judge ordered him to stay away from me. Uh, we get up there, get out on the roof, and then look up and find, okay, we have, we have to go another 100 feet up in the air up this vertical ladder. And, um, and it was windy that day. <laughs> so that was, that was fun. We go up to the top, and the prosecutor's like right on my back. And I'm looking at him like, all right, you got to get the hell away from me. Um, because I'm there with my client and he's going to show me how they did this thing, but you, you can't listen in. You got to go away. 
I said, no, I'm, I'm standing right here. And so we get into an argument. The a Port Authority detective grabs the prosecutor and physically moves him to the other side of the building. And as he's, as he's dragging the prosecutor away, I look around at him, I look up, and I just to stick the knife in him a little bit, I just, I don't know about you, but I've never felt more outside in my entire life than I do up here right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and then at trial, it was just so silly, some of the things that they were doing, you know, they had, they explained how they caught them, where they had the, you know, the, um, the ring of steel, all these you know, thousands of cameras downtown and they saw them land and they tracked them and what vehicle they got in and license plate readers and figured out you know, all this, you know, that doesn't matter. It's not part of the case kind of stuff, um, you know, for something that my guys have already admitted that they've done. You know, hell, we put the videos on YouTube. And so this detective is very proud of himself as to the millions of dollars that they've spent onto this system. And I get up and I cross-examine them. I start with, you know, so all these cameras, are any of them pointed at the perimeter of the building? Well, um, no. So you don't have any video of them getting into the building? Just getting out? Well, no, we don't. Wouldn't it be more important to make sure that we catch people before they enter into the number one terrorist target in the world instead of catching them after they land a few blocks away? It was, and you know, that's one of those things where when when you do that and you look over at the jury and the jury is sitting there more offended by the stupidity of our government officials than <laughs> than by the, the case at hand. It's like right. <laughs> so yeah, so that was definitely a a wrong that we righted. <laughs> that is that is a wild. I did not expect that <laughs> a, a base jumping case. <laughs> you know, I. There are attorneys that specialize in certain types of cases, and I've always said that I specialize in weird. That's okay. okay. Well, the, we've got an art theft base jumping. What's the weirdest then? Uh, the weirdest thing? Uh, there's so many. <laughs> there's, there's so many. Yeah. Eddie, Eddie's certainly, yeah, one of the most unexpected. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. It's it's a wild and varied history. <laughs> <laughs> well, these are these are outstanding. Now you have a very interesting law firm. Now it's it's big. You have a yeah. big law firm. Yeah. Uh, yeah how many how many lawyers you got under you under you? So twenty right now. We're adding our twenty first uh, later this week. That is amazing. And uh, you kind of uh, you. You do something a little different. Explain explain how your stuff works because uh, you seem a little ahead of the game right now. Yeah. So my, my firm's been around for about two years now, uh, and it's a it's a cloud based model. Uh, so you know, my whole theory is we don't use any buildings whatsoever. Everybody works remotely, um, and we've done it for long before COVID. Um, by doing that you cut down on all the overhead because all these traditional old firms, they spend millions of dollars a month on rent. And I, I very, I spend very little. Um, I, my, our main office, um, and you'll understand the symbolism now that I told you the last story is 85th floor of one world trade center. If I had a physical office there just for me, just a tiny little office that would cost me like 30 or 40 grand a month. 
Wow. Instead, I have a mailbox there that cost me a hundred bucks. <laughs> so what it allows me to do is, you know, by cutting down all that overhead, I can charge the clients a far more reasonable rate. I can pay the attorneys a lot more, and I can bring in a lot of attorneys that, um, because of various life circumstances, they can't really go to a physical office every single day. So over half of my attorneys are married to active duty military personnel and, you know, who traditionally have a terrible time trying to get jobs because, you know, the military keeps telling their spouse to move around every two years and all attorneys are licensed by state. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, that is very difficult. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I have a patent attorney who's, you know, absolutely brilliant patent attorney licensed in New York, but, and any other firm would love to have her, but, since she decided to marry a Marine, nobody will hire her. With me, she's perfect. You know, she provides great service for the clients. She has a New York office address. She has a New York phone number. You call her on that phone number, she picks up. And nobody cares that she's sitting in Hawaii. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it works great. It's it works great. So, you know, we're expanding. Um, we're expanding rapidly. I've, I'm trying to cover all the different practice areas. Um, yeah, everything that entrepreneurs uh, can possibly need because you, know, you have these big firms that have you know the few hundred lawyers and all the different practice areas. And it's the total package that you need when you're building a business. But most people building a business can't afford $1,000 an hour. Yeah, no kidding. So, so we do all of that without the building. So we can provide that complete service uh, to entrepreneurs at a price point they can actually afford. That's amazing. So what uh, what are some of the practices that you have under your umbrella, just in case, you know, like I said, very few people ever research the different types of attorneys that you would need, but now having you on the show, the Parlator, Parlatore group, um, what do you have? What do you have? What could you help people with if they needed it? We've got we've got intellectual property, patents, uh, copyright, and trademark. We have corporate contracts, tax, uh, employment. Um, you know, if anything, I designed it specifically under the idea of if somebody, and of course, in my hypothetical, it's always a veteran. A veteran, you know, comes up with an idea and wants to build a business. Everything they need to build the business, we can do. We figure out what kind of corporate structure they need incorporate that, figure out all the agreements that they need, set all the employment policies if they need to, um, you know, build a factory, help them with the commercial real estate aspect of it. If they're going to be a government contractor and want to figure out how do they do this to where they can get contract preferences with the U.S. government and you know, do all that, do all the negotiations. If they get in trouble, we do the uh, regulatory compliance and, of course, litigation. And if they get stuck uh, stabbing a terrorist, then we can do that, too. <laughs> So <laughs> it's a one-stop shop over there, Tim. <laughs> we, I do. We do everything but divorce. We, awesome. we won't. We won't do family law because that's that's a monster in itself. It I, I I remember Netflix did that um, documentary called Divorce Inc. <laughs> that was wild. It's it's the depressing area of business, and I prioritize my people being happy. Yes, it is. It's miserable. It's, it's let's take all your money and then tell you guys, you both got to settle. (laughs) It sucks. 
That's the one, the one, the one piece of advice I would give anybody looking for a divorce, hire an accountant, not an attorney. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I've I've seen it. Like I, I even, you know, my, my, my accountant that I deal with out in, uh, in Florida, same thing. He's like, he's had a few where they came to, they came to him. He then objectively lays out everything that, that, that the the state has, and then they come up to an agreement and they get a lawyer to come in right at the end to, yeah. to make sure it's official. And that was the best, cleanest divorce I've ever, that he's ever seen. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, it, when I was doing a lot of heavy criminal work in New York City, a buddy of mine who's a divorce lawyer, he explained it to me perfectly. He said, Tim, as a criminal lawyer, you deal with some pretty terrible people. But because of the nature of the relationship and the case, they're always putting their best foot forward with you. I, on the other hand, deal with generally pretty decent people. But because we're dealing with the divorce, they're always putting their worst foot forward. <laughs> That's true. You're, sure, you're absolutely with, right, though. I'd rather deal with a gangster than somebody going through a divorce. Yeah, that is probably yeah, because number one. They're going to be they're going to be in a very up, you know, kind of hopeful, <laughs> hopeful mood when they're talking to you. Not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Well. Hey Tim, where can where can people find you at if uh, if anybody needs your services or or anything? Where 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 can they go? So Parlatory Law Group is the name of the firm, uh, and we're on all the social media platforms. Uh, and our website is Parlatory Law Group. P A R L A T O R E Law Group. Right there in the in the screen too. Well, Hey, thanks for chatting with us. And I think, you know, a couple months from now, we'll have you back, do an update, come up with some more cases. I love hearing about these crazy <laughs> things. Yeah, that, that's the beauty of being a lawyer is you get all these insane stories. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Tim. We'll take care. All right. Thank you very much. 